Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture. It's me, Damian Mason, but you already knew that because it said so in the introduction. Got a great program for you today because I have a great guest. It's about a very timely and important issue to the American food system. My guest is Steve Scaroni. He runs a company called Fresh Harvest Inc., which is part of the Scaroni family of companies. He's a California-based company that makes sure that all of the fresh fruits and vegetables get harvested by bringing in and managing the labor to do so. You've probably heard in the news that we're going to have food shortages. Coronavirus is changing everything. We're not going to have enough food. Oh my God, run to the store, get all the toilet paper you can get, also get the fruits and vegetables. I think you're going to find a different story here. You're going to find that our food system is actually going to be just fine, and we have people like Steve Scaroni to tell you why. Mr. Scaroni, welcome to the Business of Agriculture. Thank you, Damien, for uh, reaching out and allowing me to uh, interact with you over the next few minutes. Thank you. So, so tell me about what uh, Fresh Harvest Inc. does, your company. Okay, well, uh, we're an agricultural services company. And when I say services, we're a service provider to many of the major brands that you see in the stores. And uh, we're also uh, touching, harvesting, trucking, or growing uh, a lot of the private label brands you see in stores like Walmart uh, that have their own private label, Kroger, et cetera. Uh, so we're uh, very blessed to have a very robust and large scale uh, group of customers. Uh, I, I think if you statistically break down who we serve as our customers, we probably touch about 20 to 25% of every salad eaten in America every day. You never see our name anywhere. We're kind of the guys behind the curtain out in the dirt getting the harvesting done and in some cases in our Mexico operation we're doing the farming also. Okay so let's start with uh, <clears throat> let's start with uh, what happens okay uh, a lot of my people are listening they might be uh, they might be a a John Deere sales uh, dealership in Georgia. They might be a cranberry processor in Massachusetts. It might be a soybean uh, seed salesperson in Iowa. And so some of this is a little bit new to them as it really was uh, to me, but I speak at agricultural events all over North America. So I'm a little bit more familiar. We have a program called H2A, which you can get into. We know that cauliflower gets touched by human hands. It's not like we have a combine that can go out and just, you know, combine that like we do wheat or uh, soybeans or corn or whatever. So we've got this issue where fruits and vegetables uh, need need human labor. And that's where you come in. Tell me what happens and how it happens. Well, yes, you're correct. Uh, our business is focused on high labor need harvesting, uh, the type of harvesting that does not quickly adapt to innovation or automate, automate, automation or robotics. Uh, I'll just quickly, uh, we harvest a lot of strawberries uh, from right now into October, November. It's a big spring, summer, fall uh, harvest uh, job we serve. Again, many of the major brands you see in the store. Uh, however, everybody's talking about robotics and strawberries, but the problem with the robots, they work if everything is perfect. If the weather conditions are perfect, 
if the farming is perfect, if the top of the bed, we call it a bed, that the strawberries grow and sit on is perfect. You get a rain, uh, which we get in California and uh, in the growing areas, uh, all bets are off. A robot's not gonna be able to pick those strawberries. They're not gonna be able to clean off the bad strawberries that were affected by the rain. And uh, there's a lot of challenges to innovation and robotics that people keep talking about. We cannot give up on that. I'm not uh, an advocate to say we stand still. We're always looking for better ways to be more efficient with the labor, but we're basically in that high labor uh, need segment of fresh fruits and vegetables. We do a lot of, like I said, salads. We touch a lot of lettuce, a lot of romaine, cauliflower, broccoli, celery, uh, things like that, things you would find in a salad. Uh, we also touch a lot of citrus. Uh, we also touch a lot of strawberries. And uh, like I said, we're very proud to serve some of the major brands that you see out in the, in the stores and even in the restaurants and the fast food uh, segment. Okay, so just sort of the, for the fun of it, what are a couple of your brands? Uh, tell me, you know, Dole. Is Dole one of your customers, uh, you know, Green Giant? I don't know. We have a relationship with Dole, but I'm not really authorized, and I have to be very careful because it's not my place to uh, disclose those kind of things. I'm, I, I wish I could because we're very proud of our customer base, but <clears throat> suffice it to say, uh, most of the brands you see in the Costco cold room, uh, Walmarts, uh, Vaughn's, Safeways, Kroger's, uh, Aldi's, uh, we, there's a, a high percentage chance that we touched it somewhere out there in that harvesting process. Understood. Okay. So we know that there's these, these products, like you say, that they don't lend themselves to mechanization of harvest very well. So we need human hands. We need human labor. Um, generally, that has come from south of the border. Tell me how the process works. Well, I started uh, farming in 1980. Uh, I started as a farm labor contractor servicing other farmers uh, in 1983. I originally set out to be a farmer and harvest my own crops. And it's one of those uh, business plans that we never contemplated. Uh, I evolved from a farmer, a full-time farmer growing the crop, a lot of uh, some vegetables, uh, mostly alfalfa, things like that, to uh, we develop what we call field packing harvest aids. And basically they're, they're field packing platforms that we use out to make the labor more efficient. And we developed some equipment back in the early 80s. Uh, some of that equipment's still in use today. It's certainly been refined and modified and upgraded uh, and re rehabilitated. But uh, we're basically uh, have more from a farm-based company. Uh, our blood and our heart is still farmers, but we're now a service provider to the major brands. I, I so hope there, that there, there you were, 1980, you're, you're farming and doing specialty crop stuff that we call specialty crop, uh, you know, vegetables and produce, yes? Yeah, I mean, my first vegetable crop was cauliflower mm -hmm. in 1983. Uh, and, uh, you know, we all know about the, uh, the good things about eating cauliflower and broccoli and things like that. But uh, I built some uh, harvesting aids and some machines and had a crew to harvest my cauliflower uh, as a farmer. And next thing I know, I started getting a lot of phone calls from my neighbors to go and harvest crops like melons, cauliflower, broccoli, lettuce, and things like that. So, uh, you know, 1983, uh, I wake up thinking I was going to be a full-time farmer. And all of a sudden, I'm a full-time uh, service provider of harvesting services for other farmers and also the major 
brands. Okay, so they were they, the neighbors were saying, "Hey, man, you did a really good job of getting this done. You brought in the right labor. You you've got some tools in place, etc." So this became your business, uh, and and you said, I, "This is where I need to. This is where I need to make my money. This is what I'm good at." Tell me how the process works. Well, you're talking about the labor harvesting H2A process. Correct. Okay, so back in the early '80s through the '90s, up to 2006, we totally depended upon a domestic labor force. Uh, if you remember 1986, and I, every time I talk about labor and why we're, where we're at today and why we have to use H2A, I always bring this up. 1986 was the last meaningful immigration reform that brought new workers into agriculture. It was called IRCA, Immigration Reform Act of 1986. It was a Ronald Reagan, uh, Duke Majin uh, invention, uh, and that's where we got the I-9. That's when the I-9s uh, law or the, the need to fill out I-9s as an employer came was from 1986 IRCA. Uh, many uh, at that time falsely documented or undocumented illegals were given amnesty. It was called saw and raw. So what happened though, uh, this was supposed to be the magic bullet that was gonna cure uh, having an illegal workforce in 1986 in agriculture. However, what happened is the minute not the minute, but within years or months of these workers receiving amnesty and having a green card in their hand, these folks left agriculture. A lot of them did. And uh, so all of a sudden, this program that was going to solve all our problems, within five years, we're back to uh, you know, a shortage of labor. And that's when the influx of uh, illegals started coming in again. And remember, I-9 is very specific in what you can ask for. If an employee presents you documents that on their face appear valid, as an employer, you have to accept those documents. If you start to question them, and this goes back to 1986, you fall over the cliff of discrimination. So we have been playing this, uh, for lack of a better term, as an industry, this charade with I-9s and, and documents that appear valid on their face, and nobody politically has had the guts to deal with this. Uh, I've made many trips to Washington, D.C., um, hoping that I was going to charismatically talk our politicians into doing something, and we all see how uh, effective I was in doing that, along with the thousands of other of my peers that also went to Washington, D.C., and our associations that have been screaming for uh, immigration reform that would solve this uh, labor shortage in agriculture. And also remember, even if you didn't leave agriculture, the people who got amnesty in 86, a lot of them now, in 86, you're a 23, 24, 25 year old person who just got amnesty. How old are you today? Uh, yeah, right. You're, you're, you're certainly beyond the age of, uh, you know, like you said, uh, almost 40 years ago. Uh, you're not at the age where you're probably going to be out picking a uh, cauliflower. So here's the thing. They set this thing up, used a lot of uh, government forms and terms that you're familiar with. A lot of my listeners maybe aren't. I-9 is a form that a person would fill out to seek application work in the agriculture. Is that what I'm understanding? No, it, it is a national law. Every employer... And see, a lot of people don't even know this today, 40 years later. Every employer is required by law to fill out an I-9 for every employee. They cannot discriminate, uh, you know, no matter, no matter what their race, color, creed, religion is. As an employer, big, small, medium, large, you have to fill out an I-9. And okay. that's where you get this problem is when 
ICE comes and does I-9s audit, and then you don't have any I-9s, and that's where these multi-million dollar fines come from uh, because of, of, of not having uh, the proper I-9 form correctly filled out. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so employee. so you, you've got now, you branched out from your neighbors to now you have some of the biggest companies and big farms and farmers uh, throughout the, mostly the West, uh, where they need your services. So from 1980s until today, you evolved because you said, I know how to navigate these waters. I know how to get the labor. I know how to take care of everything. You are a service provider. Uh, you, you know, you're a, you're a temp agency. Uh, for lack of a better word, you know, that's kind of what we would have. Like, uh, you know, if you say, Oh, I need three people to, to do, you know, put widgets on the line over here in this factory, I'm going to the temp agency. It's a similar concept. How, how does it work for you? You've got these people. Tell me how it works. They aren't your employees. You don't sub them out. So what, what is, how does it work? Well, okay. So we had another uh, notable point in history in 2006 uh, here we were really ramped up serving the large brands that I keep referring to that we serve that in, in 19, uh, in 2006, we were very, you know, at that time we've diversified more now, but we were very heavy into the vegetable things that will go into a salad to, to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. And we were serving the major brands that again are in the stores or, or the McDonald's used to make their salads and hamburgers and, uh, and the restaurants and the grocery stores. So we were serving these major brands and we were down in the middle of winter harvest in Yuma, Arizona and Imperial Valley. And, uh, for some reason, border patrol ice it was, it was before ice, but border patrol started enforcing, uh, started massive enforcement, uh, along the border areas where we were harvesting and where we still continue to harvest in the winter. Uh, our industry, not, not just me, but our industry that winter, we lost 40% of our workforce in 48 hours in the middle of a pretty intense vegetable harvest in human and Pearl Valley. Uh, because a lot of the people by then, uh, they were presenting documents to us that appeared valid on their face. We accepted them. Uh, as we had to by law, but when the border patrol agents boarded the buses and went and checked people's uh, documentation at the areas where farm workers gathered, 40% of our workforce in the wintertime in Yuma and Imperial Valley uh, was found to be falsely documented. And we lost that workforce within 48 hours. Uh, that was an aha moment for our industry. It was, certainly was an aha moment for me because here we're blessed to be able to serve these major brands uh, and all of a sudden I lose 40% of my workforce. The only alternative we could find was H2A. And it had been very limitedly, it had been very lightly used on the West Coast. Our East Coast friends um, who are still annoyed with us West Coast guys because we, we were late to the game using H2A. They've been using H2A on the East Coast for a long time. Uh, but anyway, uh, we had to quickly adapt to H2A in 2006. Uh, because it was our only way we could attract and get legal workers. Uh, so that got it to bring us today. We have to understand what happened to my company in 2006, where we uh, took on H2A. The first three or four years, it was miserable. It was a knife fight every day with the Department of Labor. They didn't know what they were enforcing because it was so lightly used. Uh, rules were being made up by the Department of Labor and the different regulatory agencies as they went along because there were really were no good set of rules and guidelines of what how to run a legal H2A operation. We slowly evolved into a better relationship with the enforcement agencies. We kind of got a handle on how to get this thing done. 
And, uh, you know, we started with 100 H-2A workers in 2006, and today we will bring in over 5,000 uh, H-2As this year, assuming um, we get back to some kind of normalcy here because of coronavirus, because everything I'm talking about that's happening today uh, there's a lot of unknowns, as you know, because of the coronavirus. Okay, before we, Steve, get into that, <clears throat> uh, real quickly, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here saying, okay, uh, I have heard of H2A. I have read about this. What's it, what does it, this, describe it? What's it mean? What is an H2A worker? Well, uh, let me start off with, it's not a guest worker program, as many people think it is. It's specifically a domestic worker protection program. That's the number one thing about H-2A. You absolutely cannot discriminate uh, or take a job away from a domestic worker who is legal to work in the United States and replace them with an H-2A. So you need to understand the foundational um, basis of this whole H-2A law that we operate in. So, but there's no, I don't think we have to argue the fact that we have a shortage of farm workers. Uh, the fact there's been no replenishment of migrant farm workers since 1986. Uh, the fact that nobody is raising their kids to be farm workers. Farm workers are not raising their kids to be farm workers. And traditionally, worldwide, not just in the United States, farm work is done by migrants. I've been to Germany. When I was there several years ago, they had Polish people they brought in as migrants to do the farm work. So using migrants uh, in industrialized countries to do farm work is not a USA only concept. It's a worldwide. You know, Steve, uh, I point out it's not only uh, a USA concept because you and I both know that. And I've heard that example using Germany or, or whatnot before. Um, it's also not new. My grandfather came to the United States of America in the late 1800s. And in the early 1900s, he milked cows people. He is of English descent. My grandfather, Mason, was uh, in England, born in England. And he came to the United States poor. Uh, and we were, we were tenant farmers. My, my father was raised on other people's farms being a herdsman's son. That's what they did. So the idea that it's only uh, people from Honduras or Mexico or whatever, no, it's always been the case. I am the son of migrant laborers. And so it's, it's been going on for a long, long time. And as you said, um, we haven't replenished this. And that's a real sad thing. I didn't know really what H2A meant or how it, it was uh, affected. That's why I've got you on the show. And we all have to admit in my book, by the way, dear listener or viewer, Food Fear. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that my book that just came out in December, Food Fear, How Fear is Ruining Your Dinner and Why You Should Solve Reading, is a straight talk uh, book about the business of food and agriculture. Order yours today at DamianMason.com. I have a whole chapter devoted to uh, immigration indigestion. And uh, we, we love going to the grocery and uh, we love to go through this whole song and dance. But the reality is about 70% of the uh, people working in agriculture, hired laborers, that is, are illegal. And that's the reality of the situation. And it's not, it's, it's certainly you're not doing that, but you know what, go to a hog farm and uh, that's, that's where they are. And everybody wants their pork chops and they also want to turn a blind eye to it. Well, the politically correct word is falsely documented. And we have another term we use, document challenged. Uh, but like I said, the law is very clear. We have to accept the documents uh, that are valid on their face. 
Okay, so you've got this thing H2A pretty well figured out because of what happened to your company in 2006. You said you bring in uh, now how many H2A uh, workers? Well, let's talk about 2019 when we didn't have coronavirus. We brought almost 6,000 H2As in to do a variety of functions in the Western United States, like lettuce, uh, vegetables, salad products is our wheelhouse, but we do a lot of citrus. We do a lot of strawberries. Uh, we're starting to do apples and things like that up in Washington and Oregon. Uh, very blessed with just a great customer base uh, of people who recognize the value that our company brings uh, and the value of being able to bring these H2A workers up uh, who basically, these are very humble, hardworking, appreciative people that we bring up. We, uh, and it's one of the things that I personally manage uh, is we have a very robust uh, recruiting program in Mexico and Guatemala. Uh, we basically put eyes on everybody we bring up. We test them for skills. We test them for work ethic. Uh, we psychologically test them. So uh, we're very aggressive and very focused and intentional on our recruiting because the H2A program is a very expensive program. Uh, it's, you know, if you can get enough domestic workers, uh, don't call us. Wait, you know, we're the guys you bring in when you're not getting your whole crop picked on time or getting it picked at all. Uh, but uh, when we come in with our H2As, uh, our customers uh, are very satisfied with the work ethic they see. They're very satisfied with the attitude of the workers that we bring up. Uh, these are very grateful people uh, to be able to make more in most cases in one hour than they can make in two days in Mexico. And they're able so to- let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. So uh, there's this idea, because I've, I've heard it, and I address it in my book, where I hear people say, well, it's because these factory farms only want to pay these people $3 an hour. And I say, that is complete and utter bullshit. These people are working. And I can tell you from a livestock uh, stance, a lot of the people that I know that are uh, dairy and, and hog people and all that, their workers are making like $15 an hour and plus housing. And so what's it, what is the pay like for an H2A person that you are coordinating to go out and pick the cauliflower or the strawberries? Well, first of all, uh, whether he's an H2A or a domestic legal worker, we still have a lot of domestic uh, USA workers. Uh, about 20% of our workforce is still domestic. Okay. Uh, however, uh, we, whether you're domestic working for us or you're an H2A, we have to pay the adverse wage of the state, which is a wage uh, which is a wage that is set by the Department of Labor. And I don't want to even get into how they come to that wage every year. I call it voodoo math. We okay. still can't figure out uh, how they come up with this adverse wage. But in California this year, it's $14.77 an hour. In Washington, Oregon, it's over $15 an hour. That's plus free housing. And we subsidize the meals. Uh, we only charge the workers approximately $11 per day for three meals a day. Uh, so we're, we lose money on that. By the time we pay the food caterers and the vendors and we, we deduct, uh, we're losing money on that. Uh, but, you know, depending on what the adverse wage is, uh, our cost to our customers is well in the mid-20s and above per hour with all, you know, costs and everything. We have to pay to bring these workers from their home. If they're down from Oaxaca, uh, that alone is $1,000 per worker cost to bring a worker from Oaxaca bring them to the United States, and then we have to send them home also. We have to pay for all that. So no, uh, the H-2A program not only provides a very good wage to the H-2A worker, it also raises, artificially raises 
the minimum farm worker wage in the area in which we operate. In the areas I operate, like we're right now, we're finishing Yuma and Pearl Valley down the desert. We're starting Monterey County, Salinas. I mean, the the minimum farm wage, the and not not the government minimum wage, but the minimum farm wage in Salinas is fourteen seventy seven an hour. We the adverse wage sets that because those that don't do H two A, they don't want to do it. So in order for them to attract local domestic workers, the few that they're out there, they have to meet that adverse wage. So we actually, we float the boat up on wages with H-2A, and I absolutely uh, reject uh, these uh, lies that the UFW and the anti, we call them the antis, uh, you know, all they want to do is just uh, uh, describe us employers as just terrible, mean people who abuse their workers all day and uh, don't let them drink water or go to the bathroom. So, and that's furthest from the truth, but that's what the media eats up is those stories. Uh, you can yeah, see so speak, speaking, of, speaking of that, and you and I both can complain about the media until the cows come home, but uh, UFW is, stands for? United Farm Workers. Okay, and they, are, uh, they oppose people like you. They uh, do all they can to make our life miserable. Okay. And addressing what we talked about, because I've been on these farms, I've been on these ranches, and I've seen these people, and, and I, I agree with you. Um, I didn't see people that were being mistreated. I, did, I didn't see them being uh, unable to drink water or unable to go to the bathroom. So like you said, the, uh, the workers are actually treated very, very well and paid pretty well. 15 bucks an hour plus three meals a day. You contract a caterer or a food truck to come in and do all that. And then also housing. What's housing look like for these folks that are going around from this operation to this operation? Well, okay, and our, I can only speak to my our situation. We manage and operate, some we own, some we lease, some we rent. We operate over 50 housing units in Western United States to house these H-2A workers. Uh, and it's a variety of uh, uh, old labor camps we've rehabilitated, uh, motels, apartments, homes, and we even converted a tomato packing shed in King City, California that was shuttered for 15 years, and uh, we converted that tomato packing shed, we converted the uh, greening rooms to dormitories. And oh. we've got about 13 to 15 guys in every dormitory in this uh, rehabilitated, repurposed uh, former tomato packing shed. So it that's like how it housed the workers. It was like a bunkhouse kind of thing. Well, it, we call it dormitory, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not a complete, it's not like the military where you have a thousand guys in one building. It's everybody, uh, these greening rooms that used to be greening rooms, there's about 13 to 15 guys in each greening room which, that we converted to a dormitory. Got it. Okay, so the big question now, we're, we're recording this, you and I are recording this on uh, April 6th. It's going to drop here in the next couple of weeks for sure, but... Um, as of today, uh, paying attention to the stories in the media, like you said, they love to talk about how uh, how mistreated the, uh, the the people that you work with are, which we know is false. But the other part of it is that we're not going to have enough. Uh, that there's going to be shortages. That uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Suburbanite are going to go to the grocery store and there's not going to be any lettuce because there's nobody to pick the lettuce because of coronavirus and because of border shutdown, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any truth to that? Well. Here again, you're, the average American consumer is not getting the whole story. Uh, today, because first of all, I think you've heard the word food service. Food service are the vegetables, fresh fruits and vegetables go to the McDonald's, they go to the restaurants, they go to the schools. That business has tanked. Uh, so a lot of what we do was supplying food service 
based customers that then in turn supply the McDonald's and the schools and, and whatnot. That yes, business schools are closed because of coronavirus. So therefore, uh, that food service company has no demand for your product because there's no demand from their customers. So yeah, the Cisco's or whatever they might be, these large food um, distributor companies, if you will, that serve institutions and restaurants, they're really, they're really hurting right now. Well, I have a close friend who owns Del Tacos on the Central Coast. Uh, I talked to him yesterday. He's 30% down uh, because all he has is a drive-up window. By the way, dear listener, dear listener, if you're not from the West, Del Tacos is a West Coast uh, is a West Coast Taco Bell. Uh, is that is that a little better product maybe than Taco Bell? Is that the right way to describe it? A little better it? than we, a little better. We also have In and Out Burger that uh, we don't let that go east either. Yeah, so, right. In and Out Burger is a is a Western phenomena, and then Carl's Jr. of course, which then fused with Hardee's, and now it became more nationwide. Okay, so your friend owns Del Tacos, and he's down thirty percent. Frankly, he's holding up pretty well because I, I would have said if he was doing thirty percent of his normal volume, but uh, that's fast food, and so <clears throat> uh, they're still selling product through the takeout window at fast food restaurants, but. Uh, no sit-down restaurants and no schools. So all your lettuce. So are you saying that we do, we do have a labor problem, but it doesn't matter because we're not getting the consumption? Or what are we hearing? Today, we have enough labor to harvest for the demand that is out there. What's happening, though, is, uh, and I do support our President Trump and what he's doing and the actions he's taken. Uh, I believe he's doing the absolute best he can to balance between uh, keeping people alive and also not completely tanking our economy. But uh, he also uh, is the president of a very, uh, what I would call dysfunctional bureaucratic government. I don't know if you remember, it was, um, I think, March 16th, in uh, the government's, uh, you know, answer to uh, solving uh, or, or slowing down coronavirus, they said, we're going to close all embassies and consulates. That was on a Monday afternoon. I think it was March 16th at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Well. Again, unintended consequences. What nobody in the government realized is, well, if you shut the embassies and consulates down, we can't bring the H-2A workers up and get their visas because they have to go through the consulate. That's part of the process to come to the United States legally with an H-2A visa. So our industry, uh, and I was very vocal also with my contacts in Washington, D.C., thank God Secretary of Ag, Sonny Perdue, got involved and by four or five o'clock the next day, they pretty much walked that back and said, well, okay, we're gonna close the embassies and consulates, but we're gonna allow the H2As and the H2Bs to be processed. So we got, but those are the kind of things it seems like every day, uh, the government who, you know, they're of course, they're just here to help. They implement something that has a litany or a, a plethora of unintended consequences that then we have to, as an industry and as individuals who, uh, our large employers like us, we have to work in Washington with uh, lobbyists and our associations to walk back these uh, decisions that they ha- that they bring upon us. And so there's there's been a real struggle with that uh, is trying to have the government not shut down so much that we can't continue to bring up these H two A workers because we are ramping into our spring, summer, fall uh, harvest season. Not only in the West Coast, on the East Coast, so we've got to keep these consulates and all that stuff going. So we have those challenges, but also, uh, you know, we have to keep our workforce uh, healthy. Uh, you know, we've already set up a contingency plan with isolate. We already have 
pre-staged isolation rooms and all that to handle if we do get any symptomatic uh, employees. But I just got a call a few minutes before uh, we went we went to, on today, and I have a good friend who's also a strategic partner, and he's a, a shipper. Uh, he's, he sends out uh, product to the, uh, across the country, and uh, one of his general managers, who was very hands-on, came down with coronavirus. Uh, this farmer or shipper, whatever you want to call him, he's going to probably have to shut down his operation uh, because, first of all, everybody that works for him is scared. They don't want to come to work. He has not only this one person that is confirmed coronavirus, uh, but also we're not sure how many other people because he was very hands-on. Uh, our business is a very hands-on business. You just you can't run it. I'm, I'm sitting in my home office right now, but uh, I can't be here all day. Uh, so you have, as people get infected, it's going to continue to disrupt the supply chain. Uh, we're, we're having a lot of supply chain issues. Uh, I mean, just as the... Uh, uh, the medical industry and our first responders are struggling to get protective equipment. We need to have protective equipment. We need to have face masks for our people and things like that. So we're really, I mean, we're buying face masks at a hundred at a time and we need thousands. So there's a lot of things going on in the supply chain that could create uh, labor shortages, which could then create supply shortages today, right now, because demand is down, we're okay today. But a lot of it depends on what happens tomorrow, next week, and next month. Uh, and uh, like I said, this supply chain is a big problem, is keeping that supply chain humming. I don't think people quite understand how tightly wound our complete supply chain is uh, in many sectors, but I'm very intimate of how tightly it's wound in uh, the fresh produce business. Uh, we can harvest lettuce today that needs to be at a salad plant in Chicago in three or four days. And if that load for some reason doesn't make it, that salad plant shuts down. I mean, that's how tightly wound our, our whole logistics are in the fresh fruit and vegetable industry. And uh, we need to keep that in mind. And uh, like I said, today, I think we're okay. We're on the ragged edge, but uh, we need to continue to pray and we need to continue to hope that our president and our country can keep these supply chains, these logistical chains moving and working and that we we do start lessening the amount of people infected with coronavirus because uh, like I said, uh, one person getting coronavirus can take a small or medium sized business out for 30 right. days. So Steve Scaroni, by the way, is his name. He's with Fresh Harvest Inc. Uh, and uh, they are the largest H2A uh, uh, user, is that the right word, uh, provider? User, provider. In, in America. So the big story here then is you don't see that we're going to have a shortage of labor. You see more of the issue because we do, we do have a shortage of labor or we don't. Today, I do not feel, I'm not short labor today. And, you know, a blessing or a curse, uh, we are one of the largest labor providers for fresh fruits and vegetables to now, the industry. So today, Fresh Harvest has plenty of workers to meet the demand for orders that we have today. But, and then, uh, and there's no shortage of product. The, there's plenty of lettuce. There's plenty of cauliflower. There's plenty of strawberries, right? There's no issue with the product, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, myself in Mexico and many Imperial Valley Yuma farmers, we're going to be harvesting lettuce with an 18-foot towner disc. You're going to be just plowing it under. 
where we plowed her because the demand uh, crashed on us. Uh, the harvest has now moved or is moving to Salinas, Monterey. I'm talking about the salad segment. Uh, that's our wheelhouse. Yeah, so the, sa the salad segment you're saying, and I've read this before also in the last week, that really it's so sad that we have uh, a bunch of product, uh, lettuce in particular, that's just going to get plowed under. Yes. Be because there's uh, no demand. Basically, if demand, if there was no coronavirus, we probably had just enough product uh, to supply America in abundance every day. But now... Uh, our supply definitely exceeds uh, demand. And like I said, we're going to be harvesting with an 18 foot towner disc. That's really sad because obviously, you know, my part of the world, if you get too much corn, you stick it in the grain bin and blow some air on it for the next three years and you're still okay. You can't do that with lettuce. Cannot do that. We cannot, it's a perishable. Uh, and that's, you know, I have my little acronyms. Uh, we live in, I live, my company, my people, my managers, uh, my two sons are very involved. We live in a perishable reality every day. If we don't get done what we need to get done today uh, because of what the crop says it needs to be harvested, it's gone tomorrow. Uh, we, we have a very short window of optimum harvest time. And if we miss that window, it's, it's rotten. It's no longer usable. Yeah. So then what about moving forward? Uh, you know, Steve, we got an issue that we look forward. We look down the road another six months. It's got, it's got to dictate some, many of your acres, you get multiple crops per year off of because of the, the, the climate you live in or operate in. So does that, now we're saying, well, I don't know what I should do uh, for the next crop because I don't know what the heck this is going to happen with because of coronavirus. Is that where everybody is? Well, I, I, I kind of want to fall back on my faith. I, I believe that we are potentially living in the end times as described in the Bible. But one thing I've learned uh, over the years is that even if Jesus, even if you think Jesus is coming back tomorrow, plant the tree today. So we're continuing to plant and plan and uh, strategize for the future. Uh, we're already making crop plans for plantings next September in our Mexico farm. Uh, you know, uh, at this point, we're going to continue to, uh, to plan ahead and we're going to trust, uh, trust in God and trust in our government and Trump that we're going to get through this. And, uh, you know, we'll get back to a, uh, I don't think it'll be the same normal. We're going to get back to a new normal, hopefully in a couple months. Uh, yeah. but I, I don't know. I, I don't know. This is uh, a very, you know, a lot of times in the past as things have changed and things have happened, uh, you could read the road signs and kind of figure which way to go. But, uh, there's no road signs or there's too many road signs or too many experts giving bad information. I would agree wholeheartedly with that, my friend. Last question, 10% unemployment possibly, uh, maybe more. We might have 20 million Americans uh, uh, unemployed here at the end of this week. Does, do those people come and pick lettuce? Absolutely not. We have tried every strategy in the world. Uh, uh, basically a person, um, that is a legal USA worker in a professional field uh, is not going to come out and pick lettuce for any amount of money. This is not about paying more. Uh, they just won't do the work. Uh, we have a saying in our industry, nobody is raising their kids to be farm workers. Uh, we have a lot of uh, unemployment benefits that have been boosted because of coronavirus. I believe that folks will just go on unemployment. They're not going to come out and pick lettuce. Uh, I'm going to continue. If the demand stays there, which we hope and pray it is, uh, I'm, I'm going to need my H two A's uh, because we're not going to get this huge transfer uh, of workers from uh, of the employment sector. Truck drivers. I mean, we do a lot of trucking of product from the farm to the point of first processing. 
I don't think anybody's laying off truck drivers. At least they better not be. I mean, I will lay myself off before I lay a truck driver off in my company. Uh, and I mean, things like that. Uh, we don't have enough truck drivers uh, to keep up the demand. So there's a lot of things that all the, it goes back to the supply chain uh, and uh, and just, you know, what kind of restrictions are imposed. And we do thank the government and our president for, you know, cr uh, classifying us as an essential industry. And we are an essential industry. Hey, man, I very much appreciate it. And uh, by the way, there you go, dear friends. Uh, absolutely no. He says the people that are uh, going are unemployed are not going to go out and pick lettuce. Uh, that's, that's brilliant because I have said the same thing and um, people think I'm being harsh. I'm being realistic, right? I'm being honest. I've, we've tried everything. We've tried uh, different wage structures. We've tried all kinds of incentives and uh, the average American domestic legal worker will not come and work as a farm worker. It's hard work. I mean, let's, let's face it. It's, it is hard work. Uh, it's not for everybody. I don't, I don't belittle these people uh, that don't want to come to agriculture. It is hard work. I, you know, my sons had to raise their hands and say, dad, we want in. I did not encourage them to come into this business. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've and I've done it. Uh, his name is Steve Scaroni. I very much appreciate you being here. His, his company is Fresh Harvest Inc. And if they want to find you because they want to know more about this, how do they find you? Fresh Harvest Inc. Uh, Google it and you'll uh, will pop up. Uh, we have fifty thousand followers on Facebook. Most of them are workers and things like that. But we're out there on social media. Social media is how we communicate with our workers because we're so spread out. Uh, but we're easy to find, just Fresh Harvest Inc. Uh, Google it, and our websites and our, all our social media links will come up. That's fantastic. I really appreciate you being on here. Uh, this podcast is not just on audio via your favorite format, be it Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcast. It's also on video now. Go to the Damian Mason YouTube channel and hit the playlist, Business of Agriculture. You can see all my stuff there. You can also see my other podcast, the Do Business Better podcast. So please subscribe when you go to YouTube. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the Business of Agriculture, please look me up. You can find me right here. You can find me through all my social media formats and also through DamianMason.com. Steve Scaroni, thanks for being here, buddy. Thank you, Damian, for helping us get the word out. Extremely educational. Very appreciative of you being on here today. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture. If you've enjoyed this episode of the business of agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damian on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.